Here normally we take books of the Bible and just kind of walk through and plow through them verse by verse, uh, line by line to just get all that God wants to say, all the beautiful uh, meaning and counsel that God wants to provide us in that is his written word. And so um, we walk through, we just take a book at a time and kind of go through it. And we were started in the Gospel of Luke about two years ago and uh, got some good traction. It's been an awesome journey looking at the person of Jesus and heading towards the work of Jesus, not just through teachings, counsel, and preaching, but ultimately in the life, death, and resurrection of what he will accomplish in the cross uh, of himself. And so um, we took a short five-week break. If you've been here the last five weeks, just talking about rhythms of worship, why we do what we do, and now we're heading back into Luke to finish Luke. Now, uh, if my projections serve, you know I'm never good at projections, so don't ever uh, hold me to this. It, it's possible we could finish Luke on Easter Sunday, which would be awesome. So uh, not because we'd be finished with Luke, but because uh, what a great, great day to land in Luke 24 and celebrate the resurrection together. So um, if that doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, but we're going to pray and hope that that might be the way that God would work it out. So uh, Open your Bibles, Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. We'd love for you to keep. It's our gift to you. And um, what you're looking at as we open up the Word, we believe this is an act of worship. So we believe that this whole service is what we call a worship service, where we worship Jesus. And, and you just saw us worship Jesus, if you're new or visiting, through us singing songs and talking about what he's done and why we believe he's awesome and why we believe that he deserves and demands the allegiance that we do give him. And then we also worship Jesus by opening up the Bible so we can see and listen attentively to what God might want to say to us through his word. So uh, we believe that the word is good. We believe that the truth, we don't have to defend. We don't have to worry about it. We believe that truth will do its own work. We just have to lay it out there for us to hear, for us to see, for us to observe, and ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit to change us and transform us. So um, if you're under wondering, um, it's not about us just filling our brains with a bunch of intellectual knowledge. It's about um, the truth of God's word that's transient, that transcends times, cultures, and, and people groups, and actually enters into our hearts and souls, Hebrews 4 will say it actually divides the issues and thoughts of your heart and mind and helps you to see the glory of Jesus, which in turn transforms your souls. So um, let's just ask him to do that for a moment, and then we're going to jump into Luke chapter 16. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has power. Thank you that it has authority. Thank you that it is living and active. God, thank you that it is capable of doing the impossible as we see it. So God, would the illumination of the Holy Spirit fall in a way that is powerful, that is effectual, that causes us to see more of the truth and walk gladly in it. Father, we pray against adversaries, against the enemy, against things that do not want us to hear truth or know truth or think the truth. God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, here is where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 16. Um, Jesus is basically, from chapter 9 on, uh, he's taking his journey towards Jerusalem, and he's walking towards Jerusalem. Luke actually says his face was set because he has a demand, he has a desire, he has a call, and he's fully submitted to the will of the Father to do what the Father has asked him to do, which is ultimately pay the debt for sin, to forgive sinners, to reconcile sinful, broken, fractured people back to God through the life, death, and resurrection of himself. And so his face is set towards Jerusalem, and as he's been walking that direction, he's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been counseling, he's been healing, he's been doing tons of things, and all the while as he does this, he's, getting, he's basically creating a risk with the religious, okay, the religious elite of the day because um, they don't love what Jesus says because Jesus is attacking their idolatry. He's attacking their religiosity. There were people that externally performed very well, did lots of great things, were in the synagogue, were doing great prayers, were, were doing all these things, but they were really in it for wicked motives, for prestige, for fame, for wealth, so that people would see them and be glad. They really love the praise of man much more than the praise of God. And so um, you'll constantly see them showing up in the scene and Jesus going after them because uh, he understands and exposes what they don't want exposed. So um, I always say this. This is like anybody, right? We're, we just want Jesus to talk about how we can behave better, but as soon as he goes after your heart, you're like, don't touch that, right? You, you want to slap his hand away, but Jesus wants to go after your heart because he knows that's where greatest joy will be found, freedom will be found, and life will be found if you let him. And so um, he constantly does this. So here we're coming off the heels of Jesus telling a parable, if you remember five weeks ago, in regards to stewardship, in regards to money, in regards to wealth, and he ends that, that that parable with, you cannot serve two masters, you cannot love God and money. And naturally, this infuriates them. Why? Because they were lovers of money. And so here you have verse 14, this is what we read. The Pharisees, and he just tells us who were lovers of money, they heard these things and they ridiculed him. That's Jesus. They scoffed at Jesus. They mocked Jesus. 
And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, if, if you want to just label this section that we're going to talk about, just one word, it's hypocrisy. Okay, That's what Jesus is going to get at. That's what Jesus is going to expose. That's what he's going to show in these self-righteous teachers. And it says they heard all these things. Well, what are all these things? I mean, if you just go back through the Gospel of Luke, you can see what all of these things were. This was everything concerning sin and salvation, worship and wealth, external and internal worship, God's grace be extend, being extended mercifully and graciously to sinners, to all those who they thought didn't deserve into the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. You're seeing Jesus relentlessly and constantly sit with tax collectors and sinners because he wants to show them the kingdom of God, share with them the kingdom of God. And all the while the Pharisees are going, man, sin is something that can be caught on you, so why are you hanging out with those guys? You need to be with the righteous. You need to be with the religious. They, they reeked of self-righteousness. They reeked of legalism. They reeked of their own rules and laws. And so this all culminates with this parable of this manager we read where Jesus exposes their idolatry. So they're mocking him. Why? Because they love money. Because Jesus exposed an area of their heart that they didn't like him exposing. And they ridicule him. They're doing this because they're modern-day scam artists. Um, We've probably seen this, right? They're preachers that are solely in it for wealth, solely in it for fame, solely in it for prestige, solely in it for the growth of their kingdom, right? That's, that's why they're doing all of these things. They love the approval of man, not the glory of God, and they're fundamentally scoffing at Jesus because they didn't know him. Now, that's the irony throughout this gospel, right? You've got the, the religious people. You've got basically the, the religious preachers of the day, right? The Pharisees who don't even know God yet are telling everybody how to follow God. That's, that's the great irony we're constantly seeing in the book of Luke. And so here you've got these people that don't actually know God because if they knew Jesus, if they knew how good he was, if they saw that he was the Messiah, if they embraced all that the law and the prophets pointed to, then they would have received him. They would have enjoyed him. They would have seen grace and mercy as a glad thing, a good thing, yet they mocked it. And I love it. Jesus just blows their cover, as he always does, and he basically just calls them hypocrites. You justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Now, I've, I've said this a lot, right? If, if there's something that's just utterly terrifying, it's that there are no secrets, right? <laughs> that God knows all of our hearts. So Christian or non-Christian, like, we're all laid bare before the all-seeing, all-knowing God, right? So you can't go in your closet and hide. He doesn't see it. I mean, everybody else might not, right? No one actually sees what's going on, but God sees the internal things that happen in the heart. And so here's what's happening. They don't realize that, man, God understands that. They're forgetting their own theology from the Old Testament, that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent. He sees all, knows all, can do all things. And here, as they're doing it, not only are they spiritually blind to that, but they have really poor theology. They think, well, we're really wealthy. We're really liked. People look at us go, man, look at how noble they are. Look how spiritual they are. Look at how world they are, look at how good they are, all the while God is saying your hearts are wicked. Your hearts are messed up. It's an abomination in my sight. It's all motivated by self. It's all motivated by self-glory. It's all motivated by idolatry. And so Jesus is saying these things because internally their hearts were wicked. Their hearts were hypocritical. Um, now, before we kind of move any further, um, there's a part of us that is just like them in all of us. Hypocrisy lingers, right? Like no matter who we are, right? There are spaces in us where we've got our own things, our own judgments, our own preferences, and we can't even live up to them but we judge everybody else upon them, right? So even though we can't even uphold to our own rules for ourselves, we lay them on everybody else and then lord it over them. And that's precisely what these religious people were doing. Our tendency is what, brothers and sisters, to see everyone else's sin much more clearly than our own. That's, that's the proclivity of our hearts, right? So let me ask you a question, those of you who are married. Uh, have you noticed your spouse? And I don't mean the attractional sense. I don't mean, baby, the Holy Spirit's working today. Right, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, have you noticed the sin that they're just oblivious to? Right? And here's the funny thing, they're thinking the same thing about you. All right, they're noticing all the sin spaces in your life that you're oblivious to, and that's how the natural bent of our hearts goes. We look out, and just like the Pharisees, we say, let me justify myself before men, but in the eyes of God, he sees my heart. 
He sees internal motivations. He sees all of that. So we judge everyone else for not living up to preferences and rules that we can't even live up to. And so I was thinking about this, you know, um, how often it is that we go around being like, I can't believe they're like that. I can't believe they're like that. I can't. We should really be going like, I can't believe they're just like I am. I can't believe everybody out here in this room is just like me with a tendency, with a lingering longing to actually be hypocritical in our thoughts and actions. As we lay out our rules, lay out our justices, lay out our appeals, lay out our legalisms, we do that and we cannot even uphold them ourselves. And so here Jesus is just exposing that the issue is the heart. The issue is the wickedness internally. The issue is there's somebody that has to be righteous, perfectly obedient, perfectly moral to uphold and do what you can't do in making yourself new because these residual effects of the fall that we all experience, that we all walk in, have to be satisfied or appeased in some way. And of course we know, brothers and sisters, that it happens in the cross of Christ, Right? but we're gonna get there. This is why Jesus says, what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. They're all doing the religious activities motivated by a heart that wanted wealth, power, prestige, while everyone else is going, man, they are spiritual. Man, they're so spot on. Man, look at them. Look at the religious. And God's saying you're wicked. And this is why, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, great sermon to read, Jesus shows up in Matthew 5, and he constantly will show this transition that takes place from this external conformity to internal transformation. So he takes this long laundry list, and he basically rolls out all these sins in the Old Testament were public, explicit, offensive, and shows that how internally, if those things are happening, you're still not free and you're still guilty, right? So he takes, hey, if, if you've, you know, um, haven't murdered anybody, well, guess what? If you have anger, you're still not out of the cage, Right, external and internal, it goes from, I think it's adultery to lust. Like, okay, so you haven't explicitly slept with somebody, committed adultery, but if you've got this ongoing, wanting, lustful looking, sexual immorality in your heart, it's just as much as you did. So, so the win is not you not sleeping with another spouse. The win is you being freed from the lust that enslaves you, replacing it with the satisfying nature of Jesus that gives you greater joy than that lust. That, that's, what, that's what we're seeing that Jesus rolls out in the Gospel of Matthew chapter five. And so we see, guys, that freedom is not performing well externally. That's actually further slavery. You're actually accruing your debt by believing that all that you do according to believing that your obedience wins for you, favor with God, accrues for you debt. The debt keeps growing because you cannot pay it. And so Christ comes and shows us that when the heart is transformed, that frees you so that behavior changes along with the heart. Okay, so here's, um, for me, uh, this was me. I was religiously lost growing up. And that, that's really my concern. Like, uh, much of uh, the people that sit in churches are just religiously lost, right? They think that the purpose of you coming, the purpose of you sitting, the purpose of you raising your hands and sitting under preaching and throwing in the box and observing the Lord's Supper is solely so that you are somehow, by doing those things, making you and God more okay, making him more happy with you. It'll cover your sins for the week. It'll take care of your lack of Bible reading or your lack of prayer or your lack of community, right? No, we see that we are very, very religiously lost until we see the cross of Jesus Christ. And this was me. I was the kid, I mean, one of four great parents, heard the gospel my whole life, went to every youth group event. I've said this before. I went down front, prayed the prayer 1,700 times, always to make sure, kept going down, bringing my friends down. I mean, I was that guy. I was that guy just making sure I, I'd never cussed. I thought Christianity was just don't do stuff God hates, right? So avoid sexual stuff with girls. Don't watch your mouth, right? Don't drink a beer. Don't put a cigarette near you. Like, that was all I thought was Christianity. And then as I grew and I entered college and God, through an amazing work of grace, exposed so many things in my life that I don't have time to unpack for you, he began to reveal to me how damning my righteousness was. That's what he showed me. He showed me by, by all, all the good things Mike Reed was displaying before men, I was actually accruing damnation. Because I believe that through obeying the law, I was being all that I could be through my obedience. And I was somehow meriting something before God. Yet when I really looked at my life, there was hardly any affection for his name. Couldn't remember last time I really opened up my Bible and read it for my own. Prayer life was non-existent, except at dinner. I, that was me. And then God 
began to show me through reading the word. You've heard that story. We're at a crisis of faith, first year in college. I had people I thought were Christian teaching me the Bible wasn't in there. There are parts that aren't true. It's kind of all subjective, filled with color. It's not really black and white. Don't know that you can trust it. That story's not really there. That story's not really there. And I'm just like, what is going on? All I've been taught, not really sure. So I dug my face in here, called out to God, hey, you reveal to me how you say you are, how you say I am, based upon what you say, not what a pastor says, not what a professor says, not what a family member says. I want to have an encounter with you. And in that moment, he laid me bare. And here is what he began to show me. This, all of that led me to understand that the external morals I nailed every single time was vanity without and apart from the purchasing work of Jesus Christ. Like, so uh, without leaning into Jesus for it, it was just vanity. So as I constantly saw this, that led, led me to learn my success couldn't save me, my merits couldn't save me, my ability couldn't save me, my, my goodness couldn't save me, that all around us, right, the, more, the most moral can't be moral enough. The most devoted to the things of God can't be devoted enough. The most obedient can't be obedient enough. You need a substitute. Like you need somebody else to jump in and stand in your place and be the champion for you and say, hey, I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm going to live the life for you you can't live and I'm going to die the wrath that hangs over you. Someone has to take. Someone has to absorb it. Your righteous works aren't going to take. It's only going to add to the flames. So let's let Jesus step in and absorb it as the perfect, righteous, spotless, blameless lamb who sheds his blood, breaks his body, dies, kills all of my sin with him, becomes my sin, the scriptures say, which is insanity, and then he actually gifts you the righteousness, right? This exchange that happens in the Christian Protestant gospel. It's nuts. Where you walk out clean and he takes all your guilt and shame and rises, killing it, leaving it in the grave, saying, hey, you're made new in my name. And now you live as a heart transformed for the renown and fame of Jesus, and you live out of gladness to submission to his name and not begrudging submission. Because you see what he's purchased for you. It's a total shift, and the Pharisees don't understand that. That's fundamentally, that rant I just went through is, not what, is what they don't get. They don't understand the purchasing, the, the future work of Jesus, and that's why. You're gonna hear, see Jesus say crazy stuff. Hey, be perfect just as my heavenly Father's perfect. Why? Because God is a perfect God, is a perfect king and a perfect kingdom, and you can't be in the perfect presence of that place unless you're perfect. So you need someone to make you perfect. You need someone to make you righteous. And God in his grace revealed that to me. And that produces a heart that says, I adore you, I want you, I love you. And now because I love you, Jesus says, you'll obey my commands. Not you'll obey my commands because you're trying to love me. And Jesus continues to explain this in verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. So Jesus says from the beginning of human sin, right, Genesis 3 on, then eventually what happens is prophets proclaim, laws have been proclaimed to reveal, to reveal. The whole purpose of the prophets coming and the law being revealed is to show God's moral, upright, perfect, necessary obedience requirement, obedient requirement. It was all to point to something outside of itself. Now, one of the best, um, if you want to just understand your Old Testament, New Testament, one of the best things I've ever heard is by Mark Dever. He says basically that the Old Testament are promises made, the New Testament are promises kept. That has been such a great place to anchor me. Right, so if you look in the Old Testament, it's all the promises made. The New Testament's are all the promises that are fully kept in Jesus Christ. He's the one who keeps all of the promises that are made. So the Old Testament constantly points outside of itself, through the law, through the prophets coming, who God sent to say, come back to me. I'm a good God. I'm a gracious God. I'm a good king. You can walk in fellowship with me. You can walk in joy with me. We continue to run and rebel. So he's speaking out through the law. Galatians will say that law is a tutor, right? It actually tutors you to see that you need Jesus Christ. It doesn't tutor you to show you that you're awesome. Like, like the law was never given so that I could see, hey, I got seven out of 10. Like that wasn't it. It was to show you, hey, you missed one, you failed. And so this is gonna point you to the one who fully fulfills all of the righteous requirements. It tutors you to Jesus Christ. And so it consistently points us through law and prophets, reveals we're not obedient, we're not righteous. But it points us to the one who can save us out of that. So if you're someone who is trying to achieve righteousness through your religion and not Jesus, you're fundamentally going to pick up the Bible and go, okay, here's the manual, here's what I do and don't do. That's, that's gonna be the natural bent of your heart. 
Instead of, hey, let me look at this law, let me look at what God has said to reveal to me and point to me the hero of this whole story, which is Jesus Christ, who atones and does for me what the law could never do in obedience to it, which the prophets spoke of and told of and prophesied of, this Messiah that would come to be the redeemer and ransomer of many. So the law was not given to save you. Jesus is showing them that. You're trying to be perfect in all this, but you're missing the point of the law. You're going well beyond it. You have a deficient view of it. Don't you know why the law and prophets came? And I love this. He says, they all came until John, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the transition, right? The fading of the old, the coming of the new. Right, he's the inaugural guy that basically announces Jesus. We saw that in the beginning of Luke. Hey, here he is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's here. And he comes preaching, Luke says, good news of the kingdom, right? That's, that's repentance for forgiveness of sins. If you go back to Luke chapter three. He's saying, hey, so it's not about you pursuing the law. It's about pursuing the one who has come, who fulfills the law and all the prophets spoke about. That's the one you're chasing. That's the one you're going after. That's the one you find yourself wrapped up in. So I love that we see that John the Baptist comes. He preaches the good news of the kingdom of God. And he takes care of your arrogant righteousness that comes from trying to obey it. And he also takes care of your shameful inability to not. I love that. Both, because here's the deal. If you just sit there and you're fully laid bare and realizing, man, I cannot possibly control this. I can't possibly do this. And you're just feeling guilt, shame, condemnation. You're looking at your past. You're looking at your track record going, man, I don't even know if God wants me. God's going, I want you. I'm showing you that I did it in the purchasing work of my son. And on the other side, the guy who says, well, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to knock up the hinges and obey everything. You're still going to grow arrogance and judge everybody else for it. And that's still going to damn you. And God still delivers you from that. Amazing. That's why we love the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it always, we say, levels the playing field, no matter where you stand. It doesn't matter where you stand. It's gonna to reveal to you your sin, whether one of inability and self-pity or one of arrogant righteousness, which are really the same thing. And that's why he says everyone forces their way into it. This is the idea, you'll see it consistently in the Gospels, of single-minded devotion to Jesus. It, it, the language you'll see in the Testament is this idea of like seizing the kingdom because here's the thing. The gospel of the kingdom is for those who want it. So what that means is easy believism is nowhere in the Bible. Right? If, if you, we go back to Jesus in Luke 9 and further passages, he's showing this is the call of discipleship. The one who hears the kingdom of God preached that John was the inaugural man for, the transitional period happens, we see Jesus coming. It's the people that look at the son of God who's gonna ransom them from sin, who's gonna save them, give them righteousness, absorb the wrath that was due them. It's those people looking and say, I want it. Like, I want that king. I mean, I want that kingdom, right? He says, it takes self-denial, dying to yourself, your own ambitions, your own wants. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus calls the shots. You're forcing your way into it. It's not just, hmm, I, I think I might need that or want that. No, you're, you're going in there. Like, you're going after it and saying, okay, if it means dying to my rights, ambitions, Jesus is the governor of my marriage, he's the governor of my wallet, he's the governor of my decisions, okay, my whole life changes because I got a new master, I have a new Lord who I love and I know is for me and for my good and for my joy and for my highest purpose and all of those things wrapped up into Jesus. So it's the, for the person who says, I'm taking hold of it, I'm seizing it. That's the same language that's being used here. It's for the one who forces his way into it. I'm not saying you purchase yourself in. I'm not saying that you pay the debt for you. It shows the integrity of, I'm in this not for me, I'm in this because I see the goodness and infinite glory of it. So I'm gonna take hold of it. That's a Christian. Does it mean that you won't have moments of stumbling and failure? No, but man, you want it more than you want the world. At the end of the day, you'll have moments, you'll have inklings, you'll have tendencies, but at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit of God keeps you and sustains you. Amazing. So, so I'm wondering, because my conversion experience, it's all different, just to consider that when, how did you become a Christian? And what are you depending on to be a Christian? We depend on the mercy of God in Christ. 
solely for forgiveness of sin and forgiveness and eternal life. However, from a heart that says, I want it. No one forces you into that. You force yourself. Yeah, I'm going to repent of sin because the whole illumination of the Holy Spirit has occurred and has made me want that. Now, the problem is, you can see, you'll see Jesus' frustration. They're still not getting it. They don't want him. They're not going to force the way into the kingdom of God, even though they've been hearing the kingdom of God preached consistently. They've been sitting in sermons from Jesus for a long time. And they're constantly there just trying to like, mm, I'm not sure, if is that right, is that right, is that right? Like little gnats, right? You just, just constantly trying to, trying to tame down the truth to people who are around them and look at what he says here. He just gives them an example of their own hypocrisy. Verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. <laughs> so here's what you have to understand with, as we've been looking at Luke. Throughout Luke, the Pharisees are so offended by everything Jesus says. The reason they're so offended is because God is showing mercy and extending grace to people who they, do, who they believe do not deserve it. And as he does this, as they see him extend grace to sinners, they think this is like an attack on virtue. Like this is an attack on holiness. So they see Jesus not as a law fulfiller, but a law breaker. They don't see him as the one the law and prophet spoke of who John the Baptist announced. They see him as somebody who's trying to tear down their righteous system. And so Jesus comes in here and is going, you're totally missing it. Every bit of what God said would come to pass will come to pass before the new heavens and the new earth. Every bit of what the Old Testament prophesied and spoke of is going to be fulfilled. And here's the insane things, dudes. I'm right in front of you. Like the fulfillment of all the law and prophets spoke of is standing in front of you and you're still spiritually blind and you're still ignoring it. You're ignoring me. And in fact, the law is in void. The law is actually a very good thing. It doesn't just go away, right? Actually, when someone's made new in Christ, David says the law tastes like honey, so it doesn't terrify your soul. It tastes sweet to your soul because you see that God is asking you to walk in the ways that he's wired you to walk in for your joy and for his glory. But the law is not meant to make you new, to point to the one who does make you new, who then makes the law sweet to you. And you're seeing this here. And so he's showing them. And they would have embraced Jesus as the Messiah if they truly affirmed all the law and prophets said. They would have embraced him. But they have a short-sighted view of the law. A near-sighted view of the law. And because they still don't get it, he just gives them an example of their hypocrisy. Jesus simply says, you want to talk about who's manipulating the law? You guys are. You're a bunch of adulterers. Do you know that, uh, that divorce was super common in the Pharisaic, Pharisaic system? They were constantly jumping from wife to wife to wife to wife. And here's the thing. Um, they manipulated the system so much so that they actually thought they weren't committing adultery. They were somehow getting a jail out of free cards. They could do all this. Now, now here's, here's what actually happens. is um, In their legalism, they're claiming to not be committing adultery, yet they were constantly leaving one wife for the next for reasons that were never permissible. Now, um, in short, right, we don't have a long time for this. In Deuteronomy 24, you're going to see that, that it talks about people. It talks about this idea that if a man finds someone who is unclean, cleanliness with his wife, he's free to give her a certificate of divorce. Well, that's kind of broad. And here's what happens. If you know your rabbinic study in history, this guy, uh, I don't even know how to say his name, Hillel, H-I-L-E-L, Rabbi, no one can say his name right, Rabbi Hillel, 50 B.C., just look him up. He comes along and he actually introduces this very convenient understanding of this specific text and says, hey, okay, here's what uncleanliness entails. And he says, if she puts like too much salt on the food, if she doesn't look great one morning. Just rolls out a laundry list of all these crazy things. If she puts her hair down, if she burns dinner, well, we'd all be divorced, right? Love you, ladies, but you burn it at least once, right? And then vice versa. So, so he rolls out these insane commands that say, hey, if any of these things happen, you're permitted to divorce. Just leave her. Move on to somebody new. 
So the Pharisees actually embrace this very convenient theology. All the while going, we'll see, we don't commit adultery because we have permissions. And Jesus all the while is saying, you're missing the entire point. By divorcing and remarrying over and over again, you're just naturally proliferating adultery. You're with someone else's spouse and someone else's spouse. And that's just the natural progression of what happens. You're so self-righteous and arrogant that you've twisted the scriptures to do what you want to do. That's what he's saying. Because that's why if you read this, you're like, where in the world does divorce and remarriage come in with? Jesus isn't giving a theology of divorce and remarriage. He's calling out them in their hypocrisy and a sin issue in their life. That's why he says it here. This is why if you go to Matthew 19, you see a place where Jesus is talking and the Pharisees come up to Jesus. You know what they ask him? Hey, Jesus, how do we get out of our marriage? How do we divorce our wives? And what does Jesus say? He gives them scripture and he says, what God joined together, let no man separate. And then because they're so wiggly, right? They're experts in the law. They go, well, hold on a second. I mean, Moses gave us permissions. He told us we could give us a certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, that's because of your hardness of heart. It's because of sin. But from the beginning, it was never intended to be that way. So God's design, God's plan for marriage is two becoming one flesh and an aggressive Holy Spirit-filled commitment to sustain the covenant by seeing the covenant that God keeps with his bride through Jesus Christ. That was the design. That was the desire. So that we would mirror God to the world. Now, I'm not a fan of springboarding. Never have been, but I'm going to do it today. Um, springboards where you just take a text and jump onto some new subject and just teach on it. But because I, I know that in this room, the complexities are immeasurable. I know from sitting, I know from sitting with you and counseling and talking and praying that, that we can't just leave this up there and not uh, talk about it and not address it. And even though Jesus is not giving a theology divorce, in my opinion here, I'm not either, but I am gonna mention three things. And then in the future, the elders are working at position papers so that we can show where we stand on all the complexities that, uh, that, that, that deal with this type of thing as we prayerfully walk in all of this. But I wanna do this because I know it raises a whole lot of complicated, difficult, painful, tragic questions. And I think, if we're all honest, all of us are touched by divorce or remarriage in some way. All of us. Whether it's in your family, whether it's extended, whether it's you're divorced, whether it's you're considering divorce, whether it's friends, whether it's neighbors, whether it's... All of us are touched by this. And it is painful, and it is hard, and it is sad. And so, let me just give us three things I want to briefly mention. Um, and I want to encourage in all of this to study, to look, to examine the scriptures. You have people, godly, faithful men on all sides of this thing. I remember my leadership and family ministry classes in seminary. I remember sitting down with professors. I remember them all convincing me of different, different sides. And then me writing my position paper and even still going back to that and examining that and looking at that. So here, here's what... Um, I, wanna, I want us to know, number one, to hang our hats. I want just these three things, okay? This is not everything. Number one, divorce is never God's desire or his design. We have to know this. We're always first and foremost for the covenant. Um, now, um, I say this because there are cases where people have, I believe, permissions to divorce, yet I see in the majority of, Christ, of Christendom, as I look at the landscape, more people getting divorced when they shouldn't have than getting divorced when they should have. I think the proclivity of the American church is just to hand out cards. You can go, you can go, you can go, and that is not what our heart is for. Understanding the grievous, horrific nature of some situations. And so, therefore, it's never our desire 
It's never our desire. Our desire is always for the gospel of Jesus Christ to break through the darkest of nights of the soul and heal and redeem and secure and sustain the covenant of marriage. It's always our highest hope. I mean, um, I've met with some of you in this room and you can attest, we sat down, I said, no, it's not even in our vocabulary. I said, no, we're gonna work on how we sustain this thing. It's what I've laid before you. Right? Well, well, tell me, no, we're not even gonna go there. We're gonna look at Jesus, we're gonna pray, we're gonna consider, we're gonna counsel, we're gonna walk. We're gonna fight hard. Something really helpful I was told by one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Stuart Scott, he was a former elder at uh, John MacArthur's church in, in California, and he told me, um, Mike, he said, we're actually sitting down for lunch, and I was like, man, this is just so, because I was in ministry, I've always been in ministry as I've been pursuing seminary, so I didn't have the luxury of just going down, finishing my degree, I, I just continued to go as I go, five classes a year, now I'm like taking none, because this church happened, but, but we're going to try to get there at the end of the day, but when I sat down with him, it was, um, he said, Mike, I want you to know something, he goes, you've got your nice dissertation, your nice theological alignment right here, he goes, but at the end of the day, it's not a math equation, it's shepherding. It was so helpful for me. Like some of us, right, we just got it as a math equation, right? Oh, well, this plus this equals C, so oh, that's what happened. You're out, you're in, you're... These are real people. And th- th- we're talking about unbelievable situations due to the hardness of heart and due to sin that has corrupted what God made as beautiful and perfect. So do not treat this as a math equation. This is shepherding, this is life. This is walking, this is bearing with, this is arm around each other. The variables are so complex because of the hardness of heart. So when two people submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe reconciliation and growing gladness in the relationship is always possible. Okay, that's number one. Number two, and I'm gonna kinda come back to that. Number two. According to the scriptures, it seems to, again, you may disagree, it seems to imply two provisions, not because of God's change in desire or design, but because of sin, because of the hardness of heart, because of the fracture that has occurred. In Matthew 19 and Mark 10, Jesus talked about Moses permitting it because of hardness of heart. So sadly, painfully, there seem to be occasions where divorce is permitted, those to be the case of sexual immorality and a non-Christian leaving the marriage. Matters of sexual unfaithfulness, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to look at it in regards to the desertion of an unbeliever. But understand, understand even under this here. Um, this doesn't mean you should get a divorce where there's adultery. This, this doesn't mean you should just totally divorce if, if the unbeliever leaves. There should be an attempt at reconciliation. There should be a striving to keep the covenant. Um, there's difficult circumstances or different judgment calls. That's why it takes people and leadership that's loving, prayerful, careful, biblical, helpful to be involved in this, to discern all of this. Um, that's why if you've got questions about your situation, we need to talk. We need to shed light on things. We need to ask questions. We need to, to dig. Um, the hard reality is there, there are many things because of the nature of being a new church. You've, you've got history. You've got past where I wasn't there. Elders weren't there. People weren't there. We don't really know all the specifics. So there needs to be a lot of prayer, a lot of consideration, a lot of investigating. This is why, let me just say, those of you who are single, um, you're not married yet, that, that means even if you're engaged, you're single. Okay, or even if you're dating, you're single. Right? I mean, not married, single, not married. Um, you need to be so careful who you're gonna marry. Um, because underneath, the highest question is who you're gonna worship, right? So I'm either gonna worship the God of the universe, or I'm gonna worship myself, and worship a pagan God, or I'm gonna worship the God of the universe. So underneath, assuming that you've submitted your life to Jesus, the second most important question is who you're gonna marry. Because here's the thing, many of you buy the lie that I've got all these issues, immorality issues, you know, uh, whatever it is, and you think when you get married that it's just gonna fix the issues. 
But, but you know what's actually gonna happen? If you don't put that sin to death, if you don't wage war against that, you're gonna put your wife to death and you are gonna wage war against your wife. So you can either put your sin to death now or put your spouse to death later. And I'm totally serious. Now, I'm not saying you're walking in perfection. I'm saying addressing the obvious elephants in your soul. Like, at least address them. Like, like marriage is not the, not the fixer. I mean, marriage brings in a whole host of other things, complexities. Now, listen, I love marriage. I love my wife. I mean, marriage is for your holiness, your sanctification, not your ultimate happiness. So if you jumped into marriage thinking, well, maybe they can, like, fix this out of me, train this out of me, and you think later I'll be good, man, you're just buying a lie. That's not going to happen. That's not the point of marriage, not the point of covenant. So, man, you want to jump into something where you at least know you're like-minded in theology, you're like-minded in goals for a family. If those things are there, those are good things. It's not, you're not gonna land in every issue under the sun. But the, but the main ones you've had conversations about. You know each other's past. It's out there. This happens in premarital all the time. We're walking, going, hold on, they don't know that? Let's talk. And they're like, during the headlights, you know? I, okay, let's talk about it. They don't know. There's nothing you can't know. Out of love and honor for them. So, so deciding who you're going to marry, that's super important. Now look, I understand. Um, some of you, you're a Christian and your spouse is not. There are so many situations here. Um, some of you became a Christian after you got married. You heard the gospel and you became a Christian. Praise the Lord. If that's you, I encourage you to anchor your heart. If you're a woman with an unbelieving husband, um, in 1 Peter 3, that you would love, serve, cherish, care for, like Jesus does, so that you would win him to Jesus, that you'd have a nice long view of the marriage, not a short, nearsighted view of the marriage. And that would sustain you as you walk, as you grow, as you care for. Ultimately praying, God, bring them to Jesus, the covenant keeper, show them Jesus. Um, For those of you, maybe... um, you thought your spouse was a Christian, you received bad counsel, you went through pre-marriage, they never addressed it, you're married. Um, for others of you, maybe it was two people that weren't Christians and you were divorced in your past and you've become a Christian now. There's a whole host of situations that, that could be happening. But we have to have a long view. So within some of this, um, we may be wondering about cases of remarriage, right? We know Romans 7 is clear. In the death of a spouse, there can be remarriage, right? That's clear. First um, Corinthians 7 seems to show that with the desertion of a non-Christian, they're free to marry in the Lord if the non-Christian leaves. Again, we'll have to investigate all of that. It may be the case where both were non-believers, they were divorced, one becomes a Christian. I believe it's possible to marry in the Lord. Again, this is a shepherding issue. It's not math. We gotta walk. We gotta talk. We gotta look at the truth. We gotta behold the truth. We have to be sustained by the truth. So let me say, if you've been divorced, which there are many in this room, and you've turned to Christ, repented of your sin, embraced him as savior, you do not need to sit in guilt. You do not need to sit in shame, okay? If, if, if you were divorced and you remarried, do not divorce your spouse. You're in a covenant relationship. Be in that marriage. Stay in that marriage. For others of you, you might have questions. I don't know your story. I don't know your background, but let us talk and walk with you. Share with us what's going on, the, compl- the, the nature of it. I, I can't just give you a silver bullet here from the pulpit. There's some things though we can hang our hats on and I think it's these. And the last thing I wanna say, and I say this in great love and great kindness and in being for your soul, don't focus on your marriage. Those who are married in this room, don't focus on your marriage. Focus on the author of your marriage. Um, This has literally sustained me. If you think my marriage is like spotless, you're crazy. Right? If you think the elders' marriages are spotless, you're crazy. Yet there is a striving. There is, a, and by the way, the issue is with me, not my wife. <laughs> okay, if you're thinking, oh, it's because you're what? No, 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 no. The issue is, have you met me? Can you imagine this every day in the house? No one thinks of that. Man, love in the pulpit, it would stink in the home, right? So, 
No one's thinking that. So, so, so he always doesn't answer everything. He's always got to have it, you know, so it's just, you got to think through those, those lenses. So let me just say, um, this has literally got to, let me, let me unpack this just for a moment and help us because I want to show us the, the wickedness in our hearts and the hypocrisy in our own hearts when it comes to this. In Ephesians 5, if you just read it, uh, you have this long text that just explains marriage, explains the covenant, explains the nature of Christ's love for his church, the calling of the husband to lay down his life for his bride, to love her, wash her in the word for wife, to gladly submit out of reverence to Christ, trusting Christ and her husband, not trusting her husband. It's just this amazing, amazing picture of marriage and this amazing, amazing theology of marriage. And with the whole entire purpose being that it somehow reflects the mystery that is Christ's love for his church. So God primarily gives us marriage so that people would see us as a picture above the mantle of a fireplace to display the covenant-keeping nature of God in Christ to his bride. So that, that, that's what generally and most importantly and highestly they want us to see, God wants us to see and wants us to imitate and wants us to declare to people. So can I challenge us with something this morning and I'm going to go hard at this as we end. We as Christians, we love to just celebrate Christ's covenant-keeping love towards us, do we not? Right? I mean, you'll get in here and you'll sing about it, you'll sit under the word, you'll study it, you'll go to community groups, you will cherish it, you'll cry about it, we'll love it, that he does not give us what we deserve, that he withholds the punishment that we deserve. We love to celebrate that, we love to talk about it, we love to tell others about it, we just delight in it, we cherish it, we hold it. He gives me all of this, he's the one who initiates, he's the one who instigates, he brings forgiveness to the table, he brings grace to the table, he brings kindness to the table, he brings unending forgiveness to the table, unending continued kindness, perseverance in the covenant marriage that he makes with his church. We love it. But no one's, no one's not acknowledging that. And then we think it's crazy that you would ask us to lay that on somebody else. And that just begins to reveal the wickedness in our hearts. The hypocrisy in our hearts. We think when he says, lay that on your spouse, lay that on other brothers and sisters in the community of faith, lay that on other friendships, we say, that's crazy. I'm not doing that, but keep giving me what I'm getting because this is awesome. When in fact he said, no, the whole purpose is so that all that you receive, all that you get vertically, you can extend horizontally. Like, like all that you receive in Christ. This takes incredible meditation on the gospel. This takes serious meditation and pressing and efforts in the gospel of Christ so that we could possibly do that because in of ourselves, we cannot do that. No matter who we are, it takes aggressive pursuit and seeing the greatness of Jesus. So we think it's crazy that God would ask us to give to our spouse, to brothers and sisters, that which he gives us in his pursuit, forgiveness, bearing with, and love. Um, you're never gonna nail this with perfection, but at least there's pursuit there. Um, this is why um, the more you try to fix your marriage, you know the messier it'll get. And I've seen this time and time again in my own heart. Like, the, the moment you can finally step away and go, okay, I'm not the Holy Spirit in this thing. God, you are. Um, I'm the issue. All of a sudden, God starts to work. Because the question we always need to be asking is, am I being the spouse God's asked me to be? It goes back to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Well, but they're not pulling in their bargain. What if Jesus did that to us in his covenant? Mike, you're not pulling your in the covenant, so it's, it's severed, Right? So, so, so I encourage you, if you're in that state, in that situation, to get your eyes off of just staring at your marriage and trying to fix those things. Get your mind and eyes on the author of the marriage and say, I can't believe what you've given me. Would you sustain me today? Would you give me the, the growth and needed today, the energy needed, the, the kindness needed, the forgiveness needed, the bearing with needed? All the while, we'll talk about these issues. Now, some of you are going, and I know, um, do you expect me just to sit in abuse? No, get out of that house. We, we encourage you to move somewhere else so then we can actually work on the marriage in separate places if that's happening. 
And if there's no possibility of reconciliation, we need to go through all those other frameworks to figure out what in the world's happening and what that person is. And, and I mean, so hear me. We must fight to display what God's asked us to display. It is not easy. But there is joy in unexpected places when we do. So I encourage you, if you're, if you're in a marriage right now where you, you, have, you have desires to leave, desires to flee, can we please sit and talk before you do that? Can we, can we please walk? Can you reach out? If, if you have questions about, man, I don't, I don't even know how to understand my situation. I don't even understand if, if I can get remarried or, or if, if, if I, mean, I just, look, can we talk about it? Can you reach out? Can we, can we walk in that? Can we, can we hold each other's hand and can we look at the truth? Can we look at the scriptures? Can we ask God to speak and show up? Let's do that. And that's why as we take the table, no matter where you're at on the spectrum, as a Christian, you get to celebrate this. If you've been through a divorce, it's not the unpardonable sin. You have shed blood, broken body right here that reminds you of, to be nourished by, he covered that. He forgives that. He allows you to walk in newness of life. If you're in this room and you're feeling like leaving and you're feeling like just throwing in the towel, we're nourished by remembering his blood shed, his broken body, broken for us, that gave us the richest of forgiveness and mercy and kindness so that we can somehow again today extend that to our spouse. We want to celebrate what God has done in Christ always. He forgives us for sin and he sustains us in our new life. Let's ask God for help. God, we thank you that you're a God that changes lives, that you're a God that sustains a covenant, not just with your church, but with the marriage relationship you've given to display that to the world. God, would you help us? We need wisdom that is not from us. We need illumination from the Holy Spirit. God, I pray for those who are feeling shame and guilt and condemnation, that God, you'd show them the beauty of your son, that they would not sit in that if they return to you and repent and look to you as their saving grace and saving work. God, I pray for those who are in situations right now that are horrific beyond means, that are very difficult. God, would you give clarity and wisdom and understanding in those spaces? God, would the gospel always prevail? Would you help us to see your broken body and shed blood always? God, we pray for those who have remarried that there wouldn't be no, no condemnation in that either, that if they are a Christian, they are made new in Christ, that there may have been permissions there. God, help us not to fall into any category that we might not be falling into. Help us to ask for wisdom where we need to ask for wisdom. Help us to ask for clarity where we need to ask for clarity. God, at the end of the day, might you be celebrated. Might we force our way constantly towards you, grabbing hold of you, cherishing you, seeing you, loving you. Might we embrace the table with gladness this morning, remembering the substitute that stood in our place because of our hardness of heart, because of our sin, because we are incapable of keeping a covenant marriage on our own. God, thank you that you are restoring and making new what you once established to be perfect. Help us to see you and love you. It's for your glory that we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.